Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 830 on Wednesday, October 6th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the untold history of the Mississippi State Fair. Then the office of the state auditor nabs an alleged COVID-19 stimulus embezzler. And after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, we continue our series on diabetes in the state. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi's State Fair opens today. This year, it's designed to celebrate the state's uh, frontier history. Attractions include blacksmiths, campfires, and such like whimsy. Oft forgotten is the fair's more recent history as a critical site within the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Daphne Chamberlain, who is a professor of history at Tougaloo College, tells Rob Lane she became interested in the subject during her research on youth activism in Jackson. I think it just was by happenstance and trying to find newspaper articles on a bus boycott that took place in in the mid to late 1940s. I came across a lot of advertisements in the Jackson Advocate that just uh, announced the the colored fair or the Negro fair, which at the time was located um, on Highway 49 going towards Pocahontas. But, of course, as early as 1960, um, he had students from Tougaloo College, uh, Campbell College, and also high school students who were all members of the NAACP Youth Council or chapters on those campuses that organized demonstrations to integrate the fair. And for three years um, consecutively, those students were um, going out and, of course, protesting And one of the things that they were chanting was no Jim Crow fair for us and also trying to garner support from um, African-Americans here in the city of Jackson, but also others who were visiting from across the state of Mississippi. And in some of the interviews I did, some of the oral histories, uh, with that said, um, a lot of people remembered that there were concerted efforts by the Mississippi Department of Education, the superintendent at the time, to mandate 
schools, black schools or colored schools during that time to have their students to attend the fair. So it would still look as if African Americans were um, were partic- actively participating in that annual event. But for the most part, you had young people, both high school and college age students, who were trying to get the message out that um, Jim Crow fair was something that they were not in support of. And, of course, this was all in an effort to dismantle the entire system of Jim Crow at the time. Was this really one of the first major spaces in Jackson to become integrated in the 60s? I would say that the state fair, in in terms of the success, that is one of the first uh, major spaces that impacted not just blacks here in the city of Jackson, but um, those who were coming from across the state to uh, participate in this annual event, that, that that was a major milestone for the movement. And even before I get into that, um, one of the cases that I make is that historically, when we look at the civil rights movement and youth activism, we tend to place all eyes on Birmingham, Alabama in May of 1963, when you have all of these media images of uh, the water hoses and the use of police dogs to disperse crowds. But as early as 1961, um, with students, both high school and college age students, who were demonstrating at the Jim Crow Fair. Jackson City Police were using police dogs as well, but um, the livestock pens were used as a detention center, and a number of uh, young people who were detained, especially in 1963, because it was used as a detention center on multiple occasions from 1963 to 1965 or 66. But in 1963, um, you have a lot of young people and even members of the community who likened the experience of those young people who were detained there to that of a concentration camp. And this was in really May and June of 63 here in Jackson when students were uh, walking out of local high schools and, of course, demonstrating at some of the local downtown businesses. And you had all modes of transportation, from garbage trucks to buses to, of course, police transportation, law enforcement transportation that were taking these students um, to the fairgrounds where they would be housed. Um, any of them who were under the age of 18, of course, were released to their parents, but for those who remained in detention, they would get a $100 fine. And, of course, um, at some point they would be sanctioned and told that they would have to sign a promise or a note that they would no longer be engaged in civil rights activities. But that that was the purpose of the livestock pens. And when we think about the inhumanity of a space like that, when we're talking about young children who are out there on the front lines fighting against segregation and also inequality, that that's where they were arrested because the jails were filling up, and that is where um, that served as a makeshift jail space for for these young activists. As you've said, these were for the most part children who were being held here, uh, held there. Excuse me, at the fairgrounds in Jackson, in the context of criminal justice, in the context of how one does and one does not treat a child in a way that is humane and decent. What can be said about that? I think one of the most profound stories that I heard about children being detained was from Merle Evers, 
And what she shared with me was that um, mothers from the community, so many of the prominent black women in the community, uh, many of them being teachers, but also the independent business owners who had some influence in the community here in Jackson, that they were able to um, go and feed the kids. So uh, that is something that I was able to find is that food had been prepared in garbage cans for the kids. And, of course, that's extremely unsanitary, so that's the reason why these mothers organized to to try to feed the children and provide um, emotional support as well as other forms of support to them until they were released. What is interesting about this, and just in providing context, is Alan Thompson, who was the mayor at the time, made a notion that the children were damaging or causing damage to the facilities and asking that voters support a bond issue. And with that said, and the bond issue was to increase the establishment of more detention centers for civil rights activists because, of course, we're talking about the midst of the civil rights movement or the height of the civil rights movement where it was continuing to gain momentum in Jackson and also across the state of Mississippi. But um, it, it speaks volumes to the criminalization of children as young as seven years old who were being detained simply because they wanted freedom and they wanted to, to dismantle the system of Jim Crow that was impacting them, impacting their parents, and one that they didn't want to impact future generations. Daphne Chamberlain is a professor of history at Tougaloo College. She chronicles the history of the Mississippi State Fair in her upcoming book on youth activism and the civil rights movement. Coming up, an arrest in an alleged COVID stimulus embezzlement scheme. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. This week, the state made its first arrest to date of a person accused of embezzling COVID-19 stimulus funds. Shad White is the state auditor. He speaks with Kobe Vance. So the arrest we made today in the auditor's office is of a woman named Ethel Kane. Uh, She is accused of embezzling funds that uh, originated as COVID-19 stimulus funds. State received those funds from the federal government and then created a program called the Back to Business Program. It was a program designed to provide grants to small businesses who were hurt uh, by the pandemic. And so uh, upon looking at the transactions that Ms. Kane had requested and the money that she had been paid, she embezzled uh, north of $38,000. She had attempted to obtain uh, around $400,000, but thankfully the program managers were able to see and put a stop to the payments going to her and then alert my office that we needed to investigate a potential fraud. So we did that. Uh, we finished up our investigation, took that to a prosecutor and, and obtained an indictment and grand jury, and then arrested her today. How widespread do you think fraud is when it comes to these coronavirus funds we've seen over the last year and a half? I think it's too early to say because the first round of stimulus funds that came through through the CARES Act has really just now been spent. And, and, you know, we've just really in this past, I would say, four or five months closed out the first audits on those funds. 
So uh, it's difficult to give you a specific amount of, of fraud, a specific percentage of the funds that we could say have been stolen. It also depends a lot on the, the program that we're talking about. So for this back-to-business program, so far we have a total of one case where money was stolen from the back-to-business program. If you compare that to the unemployment compensation fund, we believe that in the first just few months of uh, the pandemic that tens of millions of dollars were stolen through fraud from that fund. Uh, in fact, in the last fiscal year, which really covers just the first three months of the pandemic, we believe that the unemployment compensation fund lost $117 million to fraud. That would be more than the unemployment compensation fund typically pays out, period, in a standard year, a non-pandemic year. So really, I think depending on the pool of funds that you're talking about, you could be talking about massive, massive fraud and massive theft of stimulus funds all the way down to some, but not a lot. Looking into the coming months and I guess even years, what are you as a state auditor prepared to do in terms of continuing to monitor the funds that have been spent over the past year? One, I think we have to continue auditing. Uh, I think we I think we have to be prepared to put more boots on the ground to go and do audits of, of these funds because the pool of funds that's coming to Mississippi is just bigger. So we're prepared to do that over the course of the next really three years because this money is going to be spent in an, an amount of time stretched out over that period. In addition to that, we're constantly looking at new technological tools that we can use to catch more fraud. So 10 years ago, if you wanted to do an audit of a program, you know, what you might do is you might go in and you might sample some of the expenditures, pull whatever, 100 random expenditures, and look to see if you saw signs of fraud. Today, there are tools out there where you can put every expenditure of a program into a database, run an algorithm over it, and the algorithm will tell you of these 10,000 expenditures, these 100 look the most suspicious. And then you can bear down and look at those 100 that are the riskiest, that are the most likely to uh, have some sort of fraud associated with them and, and try to, try to uh, make cases off of those 100 expenditures if money has indeed been stolen. So we're working through various uses of technology like that right now. Some I can go into more detail about. Others are uh, tools that we are that we're using that uh, we have to keep quiet because of MOUs that we have and, and because of the nature of the technology. But that's the kind of stuff that we're thinking about and doing constantly here in the auditor's office to make sure that as, as little money is stolen as possible from the taxpayers. And when it comes to when, when you all do identify a case of fraud, uh, could you walk us through the process of prosecuting that case? So if we identify fraud, we will first take it to a prosecutor. Now, the choice of prosecutor can depend on what kind of money it is, where the money came from, how busy a certain prosecutor is, a lot of different considerations. But generally, we could take it to the local district attorney, we could take it to the state attorney general, or we could take it to the federal U.S. attorney. And we'll make that choice, talk to those parties, figure out which one is the best suited to do this, take the case to them, and then they look at the case that we have built and they make a decision about whether or not they want to move forward with charges. If they do, they will then take those findings that we have made to a grand jury. The grand jury will hear it. And if the grand jury believes that there's probable cause for that individual to be uh, arrested, 
they will indict the individual. The indictment then comes back to us. We take the paperwork. We then are allowed legally to go and arrest the individual. We'll go and arrest the individual. We'll turn them over to uh, a holding facility or a prison. And then after that, the full job is on the prosecutor to set a trial date, work with a judge, get a plea deal, or go to trial and ideally get a conviction. Is there anything else that you'd like to share about this first charge of coronavirus funds being misused that you'd like to share with Mississippians? I think the most important thing to say is that this is our first case, our first arrest for the theft of coronavirus stimulus funds. But anybody out there who's thinking about stealing any of this money going forward needs to know that it doesn't have to be our last arrest for stealing coronavirus stimulus funds. We are out there looking at this money all day, every day. There's going to be a huge crush of funds that is spent in the state of Mississippi, stimulus funds over the course of the next three years, and it's going to be very tempting for some people, some bad actors, to steal some of that money. They need to know that if they're thinking about stealing that money, it's not just the folks in their office that they work with that they have to fool. They're going to have to fool us, too, and they, they may fool us for a little while, but they're not going to fool us forever. We're going to get you at some point if you decide to steal stimulus money. Shad White is Mississippi's state auditor. Coming up after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, we continue our series on diabetes in the state. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Today, we return to the story of Frank Henn, who's part of the approximately 14% of Mississippians currently living with diabetes. Frank's known he's had the disease since the early 90s. As he tells it, that was a pretty rough time to be diabetic. They didn't, they just sure didn't know as much then as they know now. So at the time, it was uh, a restrictive diet of uh, like 2,500 calories a day and you know, you ate one bread, one fruit, one meat, and that kind of thing. I mean, this was 30 years ago. Uh, so yeah. so you, you took a, an amount of insulin in the morning uh, of long-acting. And, uh, well, I took a 70-30 mix of long-acting and short-acting insulin, basically. And so you you take that in the morning, and you'd have to eat X amount of calories for breakfast. You have to have a snack at 10 a.m. Uh, so you had, Back then, you had to convince the school and the teacher to let you eat some crackers at 10 a.m. <laughs> uh, kind, kind of thing, you know. Uh, and then you had to eat so much at lunch and then another snack at like of crackers at 2 and then, uh, you know, the, uh, whatever for your, your dinner that included your, your meat, fruit, and bread kind of thing. Uh and back then it was, you know, don't drink Cokes and, you know, drink Diet Coke and don't eat cake and a bunch of sweets and those kinds of things. And and, and back then they had, you know, a few sugar-free candies that you could eat and, as a replacement for sweets. But uh, those, had, the artificial sweetener and those candies back then would, would give you pretty bad diarrhea. Diarrhea aside, Frank had it a lot easier than generations before him. In fact, up into the early 20th century, there was essentially no way for medical professionals to help people struggling with diabetes. Dr. Stephen Farrow is an endocrinologist based in Biloxi. Generally speaking, their lifespans were relatively limited. There were folk remedies that were available to decrease the severity of the impact of diabetes. 
but those individuals were living relatively short. And as you can imagine, if you have blood sugar circulating in your body and you're unable to use it, basically you starve. So in broad general terms, those could be the types of outcomes. Those individuals would be more susceptible to infections. They would be more susceptible to acute cardiac events uh, because all those things are also made worse by persistently high blood sugars. We recently celebrated the 100th anniversary of, this, of the discovery of insulin, which was a real game changer. So for those individuals who had type 1 diabetes, they now had a reasonable prospect of leading reasonable lives. That wasn't possible prior to 100 years ago. Of course, insulin can only be a game changer if the people who need it are able to get their hands on it. People like Frank Henn. When I was first diagnosed, I was spending $18 for a, a vial of 70-30 insulin, and uh, that was what, 1991, 92, and it stayed that way for a while, and uh, it slowly started creeping up, and then I was probably paying about $800 a vial over the counter. Um, my insurance wouldn't cover it because it's a pre-existing condition. Isn't a vial of insulin the cheapest type of insulin because there are insulin pens and other forms of injecting insulin, but the vial, the little vial, is the cheapest alternative. These days, certainly, certainly. And, and that, that was the only way for a long time that was available to me to even do it. Pens are a lot more expensive uh, than just a vial. If you have a pump, you use the vial to put the insulin into the cartridge or to the pump, depending on what kind of system you have. So the added cost goes to your pump supplies or, you know, with pens, it's, uh, you know, you're, you're injecting multiple times a day. You'll uh, inject your long acting insulin in the morning, and then you'll usually uh, count your carbs for every meal and you'll, you'll inject out of the pen that way. But, you know, growing up, it was uh, just a shot in the morning and a shot at night of that 70, 30. And uh, I mean, that's just what I did for 20 years. Right around the 20-year mark, the Great Recession hits, and Frank's finances start to spiral out of control. That's tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already, and if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter, and fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.